You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi everybody, David Guzik here, here for another one of our weekly YouTube question and answer times. This particular week, I'm not going to be able to do it live, so I'm pre-recording it and we're going to post it at the normal time when we would have our YouTube live session. That's Thursday afternoons at 12 noon Pacific time. But like I said before, I'm not going to be able to do it on this particular week. And so I'm happy to say that I've got some questions that have been emailed in or sent in some other kind of comments or something like that. I am happy to bring those questions to you and to talk about something that I just wanted to introduce with you at the very beginning, something we could talk about regarding whether or not it's appropriate to call out other Christian teachers, leaders, preachers, uh, whether or not it's proper to name names when we're exposing or warning or talking about uh, other people who teach things that are wrong. Now, I think this is a very important and a legitimate question, and my answer to that question might be a little bit different than what you expect. Hold on, and let's just take a look at the biblical evidence together. The first thing I'd like to do is to remind you that there is a difference between people who are wrong about something and people who are heretical, people who are heretics. Here's the way I would define a heretic. Heretic is someone where if you believe what they teach, you'll go to hell. You're not going to go to heaven. You're going to go to hell if you believe what that person teaches. And because of that, I would say the corollary is that person, the heretic, the one whose teaching is leading people to hell, that person themselves is going to hell. Now, obviously, that's my definition of a heretic. By the way, if you have a different definition of a heretic, I know that biblically speaking, heresy refers to division and those who would divide sort of have sort of like this party attitude in the Christian church where one party would divide against another. I know that that's kind of the root idea of a heretic in the scriptures, but I'm talking about in the way that we would use it in popular usage today. A heretic is someone, I'll repeat myself again, a heretic is someone who, if you believe what they teach, you're going to go to hell. Second thing a heretic is, is that person themselves is going to hell. That's our definition of heretic. And again, if you got a different definition, throw it in the comments. Let's go back and forth about it. That's what a heretic is. We've got to be very careful about calling people heretics. People can be wrong. They can be seriously wrong without being heretics. So every heretic is wrong, but not every person with a wrong teaching is a heretic. Whether we're talking about heretics, whether we're talking about people who are just wrong about certain things, is it right to call them out by name, to name names when it comes to false doctrines and dangerous ideas in the church? Well, let me say this. It is sometimes appropriate to do this. Obviously it is. I mean, we think of the many passages in the New Testament that speak to us about this. I think of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, that says this, Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. There, the Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, again in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, 
he's reminding them that these two fellows, Hymenaeus and Alexander, he is naming names right there. Then again, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, it says, And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. Well, here he names Hymenaeus again. By the way, wouldn't that be a bummer to have your name mentioned twice as a bad guy in Paul's book? As a heretic, a dangerous teacher, Hymenaeus and Philetus. He mentions both of those. Now, somebody might object and say, hey, those were personal letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. We shouldn't take something that's in a personal letter that Paul wrote to one of his younger associates and, you know, make that something for the whole body of Christ. No, I would disagree on that because we have good evidence to believe that Paul intended, yes, he wrote these letters to Timothy and then one to Titus and one to Philemon, but, but there's, there's uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, the one to Philemon. But the, the idea is simply this, is that there's good evidence that even though Paul wrote those letters to individuals, they were intended to be read in the public assembly. I don't know if Hymenaeus would have showed up at church. I don't know if Alexander or, or uh, Philetus would have turned up to church that day. But you can imagine how it would have been for them if Paul would have called them out by name when that letter was publicly read in the congregation. Now, there's another instance where Paul named names, and that's in Galatians chapter 2, when he talks about his famous confrontation with Peter. Listen to this. It says this, Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with those Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Well, here in these three verses, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11, 12, and 13, we see that the Apostle Paul mentions two people by names, Peter himself and then his good friend Barnabas. This shows that the Apostle Paul not only felt that it was appropriate to call out names, but sometimes he would call out names of notable people. No doubt about it, Peter was held in high esteem in the early church. He's always listed first whenever there's a list of the apostles. There's more interaction between Peter and Jesus than anybody else among the disciples in the Gospels. So Peter was held in high esteem, yet Paul, when it was necessary, would not hesitate to call him out by name. And the same was true with his friend Barnabas. Barnabas was a man whom Paul had served with shoulder to shoulder on the mission field. And even though they had their disagreements at times, you could tell Paul respected him, yet he still mentioned him by name in this particular situation. So we know that sometimes bad guys like Hymenaeus, Alexander, Philetus in 1st and 2nd Timothy, they'd get mentioned. Sometimes good guys who were acting badly, such as Peter and Barnabas would get mentioned. There is a place for, at times, naming names, calling people out by name. As Paul would write in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, he says this, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. And it says, note those. And a big part of noting is naming. All right, so, that's the one side of it. Yes, there is definitely a place for naming names, calling out specific 
false teachers, dangerous teachers. They might be bad guys. They might be good guys doing a bad thing, but there's a place for it. We see from this biblical pattern for calling. However, brothers and sisters, that's a big however there. Don't miss the fact that there is also a time to not name names. What do I mean by that? Let's just go back to that passage that we talked about in Galatians chapter 2. You know those verses I read you, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11, 12, and 13, where uh, Paul very dramatically called out Peter. He called out Peter. And he very dramatically called out Barnabas. I want you to know, mentions other people in that passage whom he definitely does not call out. Verse 12 says, For before certain men came from James. What? Did these guys not have names? Of course they had names. But for whatever reason, Paul believed that it was not appropriate to name setting. I want you to notice too, in verse 13 of Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, And the rest of the Jews also played hypocrite with him. In other words, with Peter. Well, again, who were these guys, the rest of the Jews? Paul does not tell us their names. And then we also know this from Acts chapter 15, where it says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. That's Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. So get the point here, and I think this is a very important Paul simply calls them in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Well, not Paul, actually, Luke, the one who wrote the book of Acts. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke calls them certain men from Judea. That's it. These men had names. They might have been known to people in the church. But he just calls them certain men. Here's another example. In Paul's letters, he uses an interesting phrase again and again. He uses the phrase, let no one, let no one say this, let no one challenge that, let no one oppose this. Look at that phrase in Paul's letters, this little homework assignment I'm giving you here over this uh, video, over this podcast. Listen, you look up in Paul's letters where he uses that phrase, let no one, and you'll see that he is addressing false and dangerous things with that phrase, with deliberately not naming a person. And then let me give you one final example here. I think of Luke chapter 18, it's in verses 18 through 23, example Jesus gave in the encounter with the rich young ruler. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so I don't mind if you say that Luke wrote this because it's the Gospel of Luke. I don't mind if you say the Holy Spirit communicated this because it was the Holy Spirit's work inspiring this. I don't care if you say that Jesus did it, because Jesus would do it indirectly through the Holy Spirit. But whether you want to attribute it to Luke, the Holy Spirit, or Jesus himself, God intended that the name of the rich young ruler not be told to us. Fascinating. You know this whole experience where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, uh, good teacher, tell me what I must do to be saved. You know, tell me how to inherit eternal life. 
And Jesus deals with them and answers him. And let me tell you, the rich young ruler doesn't come off looking so good in that instance. I'm not going any depth in it because it's not my intention today to teach on the rich young ruler. But just to show this principle, that man had a name. Yet for some reason, God intentionally said, I'm not going to publish his name. So what do we make of all this? Well, what we make of it is simply this. There is a time when it is appropriate to name names and call people out, but it's not all the time. There is a time when it's not appropriate to name names and call people out. I have to be honest with you. As I look over these passages, it's difficult to detect a strict pattern here. What do I mean? Well, sometimes God names and calls out good guys who have gone bad. Always. Sometimes God calls out bad guys who are just heretics. They're apostates, but not always. Sometimes the repentant people are named. By the way, that's what I kind of note about the Acts 15 passage. These certain men that came down from Judea, before the story is over in Acts chapter 15, they came to agreement with Paul and Barnabas and the Holy Spirit, most importantly, to see that Gentiles could be saved without having to go through Moses first. This was a good thing. This was a wonderful thing. But I just want you to grab a hold of this simple thought that these guys were repentant. Probably that's why the Holy Spirit didn't mention their names in the text. So sometimes the repentant aren't named. Sometimes the repentant are named. Listen, Peter And Barnabas, in Galatians chapter 2, they didn't stay in this compromised place uh, where they were sort of confused about whether or not a Gentile had to come under the law of Moses. They repented of that, but yet they were still mentioned in there. So you see, there is no hard and fast rule. We can't say, well, you always mention the names of the good guys who are bad. You can't say, well, you always mention the names of the bad guys who are apostates. You can't say you always mention their name if they're unrepentant. You can't say you always mention their name if they are repentant. There is no discernible pattern, at least in my eye. Any one of our listeners or viewers can detect a discernible pattern in all this that says, okay, here's the rule. Under these circumstances, you name names. Under these circumstances, you do not name names. I'd be interested in seeing it. But let me say this. To me, this indicates... This is an area for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Don't you think that's the main lesson from this? The Holy Spirit wants to speak to us, to a pastor, to a leader, to, to, to someone who has a voice in this particular situation, and the Holy Spirit wants to guide them whether or not they should call somebody out by name. At times it should be done, most definitely. At other times, have to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And if I could say this, This is an area for graciousness towards those in the body of Christ who do it differently. Maybe, and I'm just saying maybe, maybe you're one of those people, man, you kind of pride yourself on your boldness and you're out there naming names and you're out there calling people out. Well, look, that can be good. I mean, God can use that. But let me say this. Spies, your brother, sister in Christ, who doesn't name names, is much more talking about the particular doctrines that may be wrong without naming names. Do you just kind of, you look down on them? Listen, understand, there's a place for both. Or maybe you're the brother or sister. We're like, 
oh no, we shouldn't name names. We should never do that. And you kind of look down on that other believer who does name names and you kind of look askance at them. You, you think that somehow you're better than them. You're more loving. Listen, sometimes it is. I'll tell you one thing that I am against the naming of names. Go out a little bit on a limb on this. I'm against the naming of names just to stir up controversy or to gain viewership. Sometimes you have the feeling that that's why people are naming names. It's to get more hits. It's to get more clicks. It's to get more attention. And when it's done just for sensational purposes, instead of for the legitimate purpose of informing and warning as appropriate in the scriptures, then I think there's a problem. But listen, I think that there are many places, more places than this, like this in the Christian life, that we should acknowledge where we have to take the attitude of Romans chapter 14, verse 4. Do you remember that verse? Romans 14, 4 says this. Are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him. Listen, in an area like this, where we have biblical examples of both sides, we have biblical examples of naming names, we have biblical examples of not naming names. Maybe it's time to say, let's look to the Holy Spirit to guide us about judging our brothers or sisters who would do it differently than we do. And trust that, that if our brother or sister gets it wrong, which surely they do sometimes get it wrong, this is common to all of us. On this side of eternity, we're always going to make mistakes. But, but we approach this with a graciousness that says, Lord, if they're wrong in this, you speak to them, you work in them. And if we feel that God would have us deliver a brotherly, as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, a brotherly admonishment or, or, or um, word of advice or guidance, well, then let's do it. But do it in love. As I would say, let all things be done. All right, that's it for that particular issue that I just wanted to open up with. Let me deal now with a few questions that have come in over email. Uh, Neely writes this, and she says, Hi, Pastor. Thank you so much, as always, for doing this. I don't catch you live all the time, but it's a treat when I do. And then what Neely wanted to do was clarify her question. Her question has to do with this. Genesis chapter 11 says, in the account of the Tower of Babel, it says that the whole earth had one language. But in the previous chapter, Genesis chapter 10, in three different verses, in verse 5, in verse 20, and in verse 31, it says, after their tongue. Do you, do you get the point of Neely's question here? What Neely is asking is she's saying, it's in Genesis chapter 11, where the chapter begins, all the earth has one language, and then they are split up into different languages. In Genesis chapter 10, it seems to indicate that there are different languages in Genesis chapter 10, because in describing the descendants that came from Ham, Seth, and Japheth, it talks about these different uh, um, nations that came forth after their different tongues. And she's, she's just simply asking, wait a minute, were the uh, nations divided up according to languages and did different languages develop in Genesis chapter 10? Or did these languages develop in Genesis chapter 11? Neely, that's a great question. It really is. 
let me answer it, I think, in a pretty simple way. You're getting hung up where many of us do in the Western world. Our Western frame of speaking, and when I say Western, I don't mean cowboys. I don't mean the Old West. I don't mean the United States in particular. I don't mean California. I mean, when I say Western, I mean those of us who have inherited Western civilization that came from the Greeks and the Romans, that whole flow of European and Western civilization, we are usually much more concerned with an accurate chronology in laying out a story. We are much more concerned with that than the people in Old Testament times were in these ancient Near Eastern communities and even modern Near Eastern communities. They just don't have the same emphasis on chronology in laying out a story. So let me explain it to you this way. Genesis chapter 10 contains people that existed much after Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 10 is giving you an overview of descendants that came forth from the sons of Noah while Genesis chapter 11 is taking you back a little bit in time, back to the time. Now, again, we just shouldn't assume that when we read Genesis chapter 10, that all of it happened chronologically before Genesis chapter 11. That's kind of imposing our Western chronological order, and some people might even say obsession on the text. It just doesn't work that way. But nearly, no, there was one language on the earth, according to the Bible, according to Genesis chapter 11, one language on the earth until God divided the people different languages at the tower. Amelia, thank you again for your question. I appreciate that you write in and that you clarified what your question was at the beginning because I realize now that when I answered it the previous week, I wasn't really answering the question as you had it on your heart. Thank you for that clarification. Okay, here's one from Debbie. Debbie asks this question. She says, I believe Israel is usually referred to as a she which being the bride makes perfect sense to me. In Hosea chapter 7, Ephraim, that is Israel, is referred to as a he. Is that because God had left them to themselves and they were no longer considered the bride? Just curious, I'm referring to Hosea chapter 7, verses 8, 9, and 10. Well, if you were to look at Hosea chapter 7, verses 8, 9, and 10, I'll just read you verse 8. It says this, Ephraim, which again is another way to refer to the northern kingdom of Israel. Ephraim was the dominant tribe in the northern confederation of tribes. That's why sometimes the kingdom of Israel was referred to as Ephraim. Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Now again, mixed himself among the peoples. By the way, Hosea chapter 7 verse 8 is a favorite little passage of mine, says that Israel, unrepentant, rebellious Israel, was like an unturned pancake, burned on one side, uncooked on the other. They weren't in balance. They weren't where God wanted them to be. They were too cooked on one side, and they were uncooked on the other. To, to me, there's a lot to that, but one of the things it says is just how God wants us to have a balanced life before him and not be like an unturned pancake. Okay, leaving that aside, definitely those verses in Hosea refer to Israel as he, himself, those kind of things. Well, uh, Debbie, it's really not a very complicated thing. 
Sometimes the scriptures refer to Israel and the people of God under the picture of a she. Sometimes it refers to Israel and the people of God under the figure of a he. It's really, if it's referring to the tribes of Israel as the nation of Israel, then it's generally a he. If it's emphasizing the idea of the bride or the wife of Yahweh, which Israel is referred to in the Old Testament several times, then of course it's using more the figure of a she. So it just is really more dependent upon the phrasing of the speech, the figure of speech being used. It can go back and forth. There is no universal thing that it's always a she or it's always a he. God uses those ideas interchangeably in and through. So I hope that's helpful for you. Okay, here is a question. Gail. Gail is commenting on a message that went up on our YouTube site, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, a message that I did on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I did that video, just a special, more than hour-long recording of it because I felt very passionate that I have uh, encountered some people in the last several months who have been taught some not just wrong, but destructive and dangerous things on this whole issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so I felt compelled to address it. Here's Gail's question in light of that video, which if you're interested, you can find it on our YouTube channel. Here's her question. I'm listening to your message on divorce, remarriage, etc. I have a question. I know someone whose spouse divorced them because the other spouse was using pornography. Is this biblical grounds for divorce? Both were professing believers, although their behavior, both during the marriage and after the divorce, would make one to question their commitment to God or that they had genuine faith. In fact, the one who filed for divorce based on the other spouse's use of pornography was in a serious dating relationship, including overnights, well before the divorce was final months later. Now I wonder if either of them is able to remarry other people or if they ought to try to reconcile and remarry. Okay, a lot of questions there. Let, let me get down to this one thing. Does pornography break the marriage bond? Is it sexual immorality in the way that Jesus described it in Matthew chapter 19? And Gail, sorry to say, I have to give you a kind of a pastoral answer here. My answer for you is maybe, maybe. Let me tell you, we understand the principles from Scripture clearly enough. Not always, but in this case we do. But how those principles apply to real-life situations really requires walking through the details of the situation and walking through them accurately, not just from one side. I don't know how many times I've counseled couples, or really you counsel an individual. Just to give an example, I'll counsel a man who's talking to me about, you know, how, how terrible his wife is and how she's ruining the whole marriage and this and that and on and on. And after talking with him, you think, well, man, no wonder this marriage is messed up. Look how messed up the wife is. And then I'll counsel both of them together. I, I wouldn't counsel the wife on her own, but I'll counsel the both of them together. And suddenly it comes out, well, it's not like the way the husband painted it at all. So again, if we're, we're digging into this situation, we understand the biblical principles, but, but it takes wise 
pastoral discernment to figure out how these things apply in real life situations. Is it possible that somebody could be so given over to pornography that it would really qualify as sexual immorality the way that Jesus spoke of it in Matthew chapter 19? Absolutely, that's possible. Absolutely. Uh, If somebody sees an illicit, um, impure image and uh, isn't obsessed by it or that, does that? Well, probably not. Where does the line land between those two? Some wise pastoral discernment to see where these things apply. So all I can tell you in this particular situation is perhaps pornography and addiction to pornography or obsession with pornography could be a valid grounds for divorce, but I have seen, I hesitate to say this, but I feel like I must. I have seen situations where a claimed justification because of pornography was really just an excuse to get out of the marriage. That's the case. God sees through it. God looks to the heart. And if there's somebody who's looking for some kind of accusation or technicality, because basically they just went out of the marriage. Honestly, whether or not their spouse uses pornography, it doesn't really bother. They just went out of the marriage. Listen, God sees through that. And the person is not divorced for biblical grounds. And might I say, biblical grounds, not just in the technicality, but in the heart. Biblical grounds in the heart. Then God doesn't recognize that remarriage. And if they were to remarry, God doesn't recognize that divorce, I should say. And if they were to remarry, it would be adultery. Now, again, I need to get back to an important point that I make in an extended talk in that video. And I have to kind of control myself to not go in and cover everything I covered in that hour plus video. Let me just say this. For someone to commit the sin of adultery by marrying somebody when they are not actually free to marry because they are obligated to a prior marriage bond, that is adultery, it is sin, but it can be repented of before the Lord without necessarily dissolving the present marriage. That's the big mistake. Big mistake isn't seeing that sometimes people remarry and they remarry out of God's plan and that constitutes adultery. That's not the problem necessarily seeing that. The problem is in saying that the only way you can repent of that is to divorce your present spouse. Listen, there can be a genuine brokenness of heart hatred of sin, and, and just rejection of it altogether, and, and coming to the place where you just say, okay, Lord, I hate my sin. Would you please cleanse me of it? And now I'm going to continue on in the place where you have called me in this pleasant rela- present relationship. I'm not going to try to solve one sin by committing another. So that's just kind of the whole perspective there. I hope that's helpful for you, Gail. And again, I would just stress again that oftentimes these things need to be addressed by some wise pastoral discernment. Okay, let me keep going uh, to another couple of questions. Uh, Dear Pastor David, this is from Jennifer. Sometimes I feel like I get mixed messages, believing, for instance, that it's the devil who wants you to act fast and in haste. 
Then you read something like 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 23 through 24, and God is saying to David, act quickly. Well, how do you know which is which? That's a great question. I'll tell you something that helped me in the last few years to answer that question, I think, from a better perspective. It's an understanding from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is an interesting book because these are Proverbs. They are not necessarily spiritual laws. They're words of advice that are sometimes correct in one situation and other times correct in another situation. Let me use some non-biblical Proverbs to illustrate this. Okay, here's some non-biblical Proverbs. Two Proverbs. One though it says, He who hesitates is lost. In the English language, that proverb, he who hesitates is lost, means, man, when you got an opportunity, jump on it or you'll be lost. And then here's another one. Look before you leap. What's that proverb tell you? Again, this non-biblical proverb, look before you leap, tells you, be cautious. Don't jump in too quickly. Which one is right? Is it right to say, he who hesitates is lost, or look before you leap? And the answer is, both can be right in their appropriate situation. This is why we need to be filled with the Spirit. This is why we need to walk in the Spirit. Because there is no universal answer for those questions, Jennifer. In some situations, it's like, yes, press in, grab a hold of the opportunity, go with it with all your might. In other situations, we need to hear from the Holy Spirit and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I'm going to be a little more cautious. Attempt to live this life in the Spirit, assure you of something. There will be times when we get it wrong. Just say it again. There's going to be times when we get it wrong. Nobody is perfect at walking in the Spirit. And there's going to be times when we should jump right in where we hold back. There's going to be times when we're trying to listen and be led by the Spirit, and we should hold back and we'll jump right in. This is what I want to assure you of. We have a God full of love and grace and compassion. We can rest in that and not freak out, so to speak, about these times when we might uh, be just not quite keeping in step with the Spirit. That's always our hope. It's always what we endeavor to do. But nobody on this side of eternity does it. And then um, one more thing from Jennifer, she says, I read the story of Abraham. If the Lord asked me to kill my son, I'd swear that that message came from the other side. Jennifer, you should. Because what God instructed Abraham to do with his son Isaac was unique in his unfolding plan of redemption. And I want to point out to this. What was so amazing about the story where God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son was God also commanded him to stop. God never intended that Abraham go all the way and sacrifice his son. It was a test of Abraham's obedience. Listen, every once in a while you'll hear a tragic story in the news today where somebody reads this portion of the Bible and they think that God would have them do some kind of violence to their children. Brothers and sisters, I tell you, that is never the voice of the Lord. The takeaway, the takeaway from God's dealings with Abraham in this whole thing of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice on Mount Moriah, the takeaway from that is that God does not want sacrifice that he is not like the gods of the Canaanites or the gods of the innumerable other aboriginal cultures where human sacrifice was practiced openly and freely in the uh, 
primitive, if you want to use that phrase. I know it's not such a great phrase to use in the, in the pre-civilized uh, world. Human sacrifice was very, very common in antiquity. God demonstrated through this incident with Abraham and Isaac that he was not interested in human sacrifice. Well, look, that's going to wrap it up for today. Next time, we're going to have some more questions to get to. Periodically, when I cannot do the live session, we're going to do these sessions. So, keeping that in mind, feel free to respond in the comments with your questions that I might be able to address in an upcoming video. I like to have a bit of a stockpile of questions that I can come and touch on and deal with from week to week in these sessions when I can't do the live video and respond to the live chats. Listen, I love those times. I look forward to the next time we can do it. But until we can, I want to do these live sessions or these, well, these recorded sessions where we can come together and talk about these things in Scripture. And I get to talk to you about some things that are on my heart. Like I want to talk to you today about the whole thing of calling people out and naming names of false teachers and wrong teachers and the rest of that. I hope it's been a beneficial time for you. Thank you. Uh, please remember our Enduring Word app on iPhone and hopefully coming very soon to the Android. Uh, we've been very blessed by the number of people who have been downloading the app. You can get my text Bible commentary and other resources online uh, through that app in a very quick and efficient way. I also want to say thank you to all those who support the ongoing work of Enduring Word. So until we get to again another time on one of these uh, sessions, I look forward to it and I hope you do too. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.